This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Greg Hurwitz. So he is a novelist, screenwriter, and comic book writer, and he is the number one New York Times bestselling author of 23 thrillers, if not 24 by now, which includes the wildly popular Orphan X series. And today we're going to be talking about his newest title in that series. It's The Last Orphan, which, guys, if you are listening to this right now, it is out right now. You can pick it up wherever you want to go. And the thing about this that I found very, very interesting is when you're preparing an interview, you're you know looking at their titles, you're looking at the stuff they produced, you're looking at the stuff the publicist or the publisher sent you, and you're trying to piece all this stuff together, but you never really know exactly what you're going to get into. But when he and I hopped on our recording software beforehand, we probably had 10, 15 minutes of conversation before we hopped into the interview, and it really didn't have to do anything with the work that he did. So of course, we're going to talk about the Orphan X series and The Last Orphan and whether or not it's going to be a television show or a, or a movie at some point down the line. But we talked a lot about uh, his relationship with Jordan Peterson. He was actually a student of Jordan Peterson's whenever Jordan Peterson was a professor at Harvard and he was studying at Harvard. So we talked a lot uh, about that, but then we just talked about really, and this is why I wanted to name the today's uh, episode, the eternal power of story, because we went everywhere in this conversation and we went into some definitely some ethereal levels and some philosophical areas where we talked about just the power of story and what that looks like in modernity. Because this is a guy that probably aligns more so with the the liberal side of things. He talked about that. He's really high in trade openness. And I'm obviously more on the conservative side. But just talking about how do we get society back to where those two sides can talk to each other, to where it could lead to an overall uh, level of human flourishing. And so we really went a lot of different areas in, in this conversation. Yeah, we, we talked about the books and, and you know kind of where he got the, the ideas for this and kind of how he's able to use some of his influences from writing and from reading really early on in his life to where he goes today, you know, the explosion of audiobooks and what that's done for him. But this is not like really any other episode or every, any other interview that we've done on the show, because I just kind of let it ride. There was even at one point, I think I, I ended up leaving it in there, but at one point he's like, wait a minute, can, can we actually edit that? Can I go back and like restart that, that answer? I, I don't know if I was making any sense. And I was like, no man, let, like, let's keep it in. Like, let's just keep this going because it's like, he and I were just saying things. It was almost like he and I were just sitting down having a conversation over a couple of whiskeys because it's like, we're just trying to figure it out. At, and we're just kind of like putting it out there. It's similar to the forging table. You're just trying to figure it out as you're saying it. And you're just trying to coalesce all your thoughts into something that, that makes sense to you, but is also applicable to a wider audience. So uh, I really, really enjoyed my time with him today, guys. So I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Greg Hurwitz, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Kyle, thanks for having me. Okay. I say this sometimes on my shows, but I literally was just like chomping at the bit to hit record because I feel like we did an entire interview before I hit record. We got a lot of great stuff to talk about, but we do need to talk about the whole reason why you were booked to come on here in the first place. So let's try to find a soft place to land at least. So you're obviously a professional writer, a very prolific writer. We'll certainly get more into your career, but 
I guess what drew you to that as a career? And I, I guess, did you ever think it would be a career? Because there's a lot of kids that enjoy writing, enjoy reading, but they never really kind of formulate that into, okay, I want to do this for a living. So how'd all that go down? My brain was wired this way. I mean, my parents didn't want me watching TV growing up. They thought it was the plug and drug, right? right. In my house, I, I grew up in California. I could only watch though, if like the, there was a Hitchcock movie on or Red Sox. Cause Red Sox is like religion. My dad's from Boston. Okay. And so I read all the time. I just did sports during the day and, and read all the time at night. And my brain was, was, I loved it. I loved it. And I thought that everybody who loved reading eventually wanted to be a writer. Like, you know, when you're young and your mindset is you think everybody thinks like you. Right. And then you grow up and you're like, wow, people are insanely different. Um, but look, man, I mean, I wrote, I wrote a mystery illustrated with crayons when I was in fifth grade. Like I was on this trajectory and I, it's a great thing because it's a hard, it's a hard profession in a lot of ways, but at least I figured out what I was aiming at really young and just did everything kind of, I just loved it. And then I followed everything that I loved and interested me the most rather than limiting it early and like going and studying creative writing and then getting a master's in creative writing. And then like, I was like, what am I going to write about? So I was very, um, varied and explosive in the kinds of things that I pursued and tried to engage in. Well, so Greg, the, the people that are kind of in your vein, you know, whenever I talk to, you know, uh, a painter or a musician or something like that, everyone kind of has influences, but you don't necessarily see those influences in their writing every time. Like I know guys that were influenced by jazz, but they play heavy metal, like, like drums. And it's like, it's not exactly the same thing. So were there, I guess, favorite writers of yours or, or people yeah. that kind of influence your, your modern style or, or is there someone that you really, really liked, but you just can't emulate their style and what you do now? Well, what's cool, look, I'm 24 books in now. And so what's kind of cool about that is I have, I feel like I have a, a handle on the nature with which I'm writing. You never master an art form. You just don't. It's like, you should always be trying to go further than you are and failing at it and then trying to pull yourself forward with it. But look, I loved Stephen King growing up. Um, I was reading him in fifth grade, like under the bed with a flashlight. Okay. Um, and I studied Shakespeare. I got a master. So I studied English and psychology when I was an undergraduate. Jordan Peterson was my professor and my thesis advisor. We go back a long ways. Him teaching Jung was amazing for me. So I studied English and psychology because I just thought those are the two things I was most passionate about. And you look back on it, it's like, right, all Freud, Freud's case studies are like short stories, right? They're like projected contents of the unconscious, of the subconscious. And then Jung only wrote about story and narrative. And then I did my master's and actually my undergrad stuff too, but my master's degree was Shakespearean tragedy. And it's like, people are like, well, why would you study Shakespeare? And, and then now you're a thriller writer. And it's like, well, mm -hmm. what did Shakespeare write? Tales of like lust, murder, war, ambition, right? Highly structured, narrative driven, designed to sell out like the Globe Theater every night to the widest cross section of society. And so story and the way I was interested in it. And the other thing that's really interesting with Shakespeare, I mean, obviously this goes back to the Greeks, but like the tragic flaw embedded in the, is always embedded in the character, right? That's what distinguishes narrative from real life. Like real life is you get pancreatic cancer, right? An acne safe falls on your head. Um, we can't see as clearly as in the symbolic realm, right? That something that you do opens the door to unforeseen consequences. That's right. the structure of tragedy. That's the structure of a thriller. That's what I'm writing about with Orphan X. Is there something inherent in him that he's trying to kind of go up against and it's it's represented in 
the, the, the mission or the next mission that he gets pulled into. And so it all kind of fits, but it didn't fit when I was doing it. I was just right. saying, what do I love? What do I get into? And then I look back in hindsight and it just falls, it pulls together like a tapestry. Well, the thing is, is as you're reading your novels, you're obviously not reading them in iambic pentameter, but whenever you go back and look at, at Shakespeare, you have to realize that nothing else was happening like that at that time. And so it's like, when you, when you look back on a band, you're like, oh, that band's terrible. It's like, no one was making noises with their instruments that sounded like that at that time in history. It's like, go back to that time and your mind would have absolutely been blown. But, you know, it seems like in your writing style, Greg, that you pull from all these other different places. So you mentioned that you used to be a student of Jordan Peterson's. I believe that's whenever you were completing your degree at Harvard University. But I don't know if you know this or not, but he's persona non grata. You know, this is a guy that you're not supposed to be friends with. He's the worst person ever. He's somewhere between Hitler and Satan, those types of things. And so I'm, I'm sure you're not, uh, is it unique, I guess, that you're one of his former students and you claim that you're one of his former students? You have people that are kind of like a little bit touch and go with you because you're, uh, you know, a big fan and, you know, I guess a student of Jordan Peterson even to this day. Look, Jordan, I go back forever, right? Like he officiated my wedding, you know, it's oh, like wow. we're, we're close and I'm, I'm very much from a more liberal background and tradition. And from day one, when all that went down, I mean, look, Jordan's in the in the first book of Orphan X. Like, I have some of his rules for life when it was off Quora, which is really funny because yeah. I was like, oh, you know, here's my brilliant yet little known Canadian professor. Like, let me reference a few things he's saying. This should be uncontroversial, <laughs> especially in like publishing and Hollywood and like all these other circles, right? And then, you know, when 12 Rules for Life came out, you know, he and I were talking a lot about that around it and- you know, so from day one, I just made a choice that was like, I'm not, that's a relationship. It's we're, we're, un, we're, we're really close. You know, he's, he's, he's guiding his way towards something that's making a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And like, I stood by him, you know, publicly and privately from day one. It's like, that's my friend. You know, that doesn't get to be negotiated in a court of public opinion, which isn't even a court of public opinion. It's right. like algorithms screaming at you that have been maximized to freak you out through dopamine. Right? right. And so, and look, Jordan and I disagree on a lot. We agree on more and more, the more that we can talk. And that's, I mean, maybe that's what, how it is with all of us. Right. Right. But Greg, isn't that the key though? Because like, I, I got an email the other day, you know, funny enough, it was about Jordan Peterson. They're like, Hey, you talk about Jordan on your podcast a lot, but he said this about this particular subject. So do you regret, you know, uh, telling people to read his books? I was like, well, no, like you, you don't get rid of somebody because you disagree with them on one thing that you've never talked to them personally about. Because you're, you know what I mean? Imagine being liberal and friends with Jordan Peterson and you're so dumb that you want to agree with him on everything. Like imagine the limitations of that mindset, like to have the benefit of him as a friend and go, oh, well, let me just follow everything you say. Let me not argue or figure out or, and look, we've been doing it for decades. And it's like, yeah. and, my, and my friends are, I have friends all the way around the wheel in that regard. I have friends who right. I'm from a pretty liberal background like my own like sort of cultural orientation in my own life is actually further liberal than than where I, I morally and strategically think the country should be even. And that's another thing we've lost. It's like your own viewpoint for the world, like good for you. I'm glad that works for you in your community. You can't make that what the entire governing ethos is of a whole diverse society, really diverse society. And like, where did we think that, that we're going to elect politicians and political parties that agree with everything we say on every issue? That's impossible. 
and that we're not supposed to be talking and engaging constantly with people who disagree with us vehemently, who are brilliant articulators of the opposing viewpoint and play right. fair. If, if, and it's up to you also to set the conditions where you play fair. You can't go on Twitter and like scream at Tucker Carlson and then feel like no one will listen and the world's not fair or Rachel Maddow, like pick your thing. Right. And so a lot of this is, it's like, of course we need disagreement and we need, I mean, look, I learned so much more from my friends who are from different backgrounds and I got, I've been fortunate. I, you know, one of my closest friends growing up was the son of a missionary. He's staying with me right now. One of my buddies, born again, Christian Navy SEAL sniper. And it's like, we've had arguments like you wouldn't believe, right. That like mm -hmm. shut down a bar where they're like banging the bar stools <laughs> next to us at, you know, two in the morning loudly. And but that's where you learn anything. That's where you learn anything. And, well, you know, anyways. Well, well, Greg, I, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Like, but isn't that where that's where growth comes from? Because there are times when I'm so brain dead, I just want to be around people that think exactly like, like I do and don't want to challenge me whatsoever. But it's when you're engaged with somebody that has a fundamental disagreement on what the opinion of a certain situation is or what you should do. The thing is, is when now we're, we're kind of in this postmodern moment to where truth is what's being debated, right? Where it's like what, what we should be debating is how we can go about fixing this thing to lead to the most amount of human flourishing. But here we are trying to pretend like two plus two equals something different than what we've known for, for the rest of time. And it actually re reminded me of something. Uh, I told you this off air. I was like, I'm halfway through your book before I realized I've heard you talk before. And then it was a conversation mm -hmm. between you and Jordan Peterson, I believe is on his show. And you said, I think the quote was, everything foundationally is moral. That was the quote. Everything foundationally is moral. And you essentially learned that from Jordan, you know, uh, from your conversations and some of your interactions with him. And you talk about that, how that particular understanding affected how you write, but also how you see the world. And so I don't know if you remember that quote, but uh, of all the things that I heard in that conversation, that that stuck out like a you know, purple hat with a yellow bill. Like I was like, okay, I couldn't really quite get past that. So did you remember saying that? Do you kind of remember the context of that? I do, I do. It stuck out like a Lakers hat, man. Oh yeah, I didn't even mean to describe <laughs> that, but there you go. That's it's ridiculous colors. Uh, yeah, well, look, I mean, it's not, the thing with Jordan is, is, Obviously he's a leader, right? But Jordan's also like, he should, he should be, a, a, it's a piece of it, a bigger educational picture, let's just say, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, that's Plato, that's faith, that's story. That's what you can learn in the great Gatsby. That's what you can learn from Dostoevsky, right? That's what you learn from great music. Like we're, what we're talking about is, is if you, if you purify yourself, right? If you rank your priorities the right way, then all these things sort of start to align. And so that is something like Jordan said at one point in the lecture way back when, like there are only moral choices. And it's like, well, that sounds sanctimonious and, and silly, right? Like you can do stuff and kind of get away with it and be fine. Mm. But it's like mm, everything that you're doing, right? Everything that you're doing less than perfect, everything that you're doing that's less than optimized has some impact. And so one of the things that's funny with Orphan X is I wrote, he, he grew up my main character with the 10 Assassin's Commandments. The one that gets quoted more than any other one is the second commandment, which is how you do anything's how you do everything. That's had like tons of resonance. Yeah. There's like soldiers will have that. People get tattoos, rings like that. That's really hit a note. And in my, in, in Orphan X series, Evan is a trained assassin from the age of 12, right? And he's kind of grew up in the, in the orphan program, fled the program at some point, um, 
for me, the series coalesces around a line that his uh, father figure and handler, CI handler, told him when he was 12. He was taken out of a foster home as the smallest, scrawniest kid who got knocked down the most, but always got up the most. And Jack Johns, his father figure, picked him and says to him when he's young, first of all, always remember how vulnerable that you feel right now. Because I'm going to arm you, you know, you're, he's going to be trained with like the power of the, like the furies as an assassin. And the other thing is for you to know the hard part won't be making you a killer. The hard part will be keeping you human. And that's what the series has been about for me. Like one of the things I say early on is that Evan never learned to speak the strange language of intimacy. And so he's on the outside. He's raised outside. He's committing all these missions. And then at some point, those two things Jack set him up with, that's a tension. Those are two trains that are going to collide. Mm-hmm. Right. And when they collide, he leaves the program and basically, so here's a guy who's got unlimited resources, an insane skill set, and nothing to do. And so he basically becomes a pro bono assassin for people in desperate, desperate need who have nowhere else to turn. But he can try to align that with his own moral compass and see what he can learn about the world. And in doing so, see what he can learn about being a human being. And so that's the arc of the series and what I was writing about. And that first part, how you do anything is how you do everything. That's his training. But you can also see he's got um, aspects of OCD that'll rear up. Like he lives in a 7,000 square foot apartment, like polished steel Scandinavian. There's like a weapons locker up in a residential tower in LA. He lives among ordinary people kind of hiding and integrating with them like anthropologically almost. But if that OCD starts looping, that's perfection um, that's, that's ossifying into rigidity. That's where it'll start to shut you down. So he's trying to figure out all this balance and integration, right? He doesn't just want to be a robotic killer, but intimacy, letting other people in his life, figuring out in some ways, even helping them on a mission from a distance, people are messy. People are really messy. And so, you know, it's great. So I wrote Batman for a couple of years, right? And Bat for DC. And Batman is amazing because I always love Batman because Superman can fly. Green Lantern has a ring. He's just a guy. He's a guy who represents the pinnacle of what can be accomplished if you align yourself spiritually. Remember, he went to Tibet and studied with monks. Mm -hmm. Physically, we all know. Technologically. But he's he's just a man. But part of why he's a man is he's alone. Like a superhero is a man. His parents are killed. Robin gets killed every five minutes. There's a new Robin. He gets killed. And so Batman, when I was writing Batman, I was thinking a lot about this opposition of intimacy and perfection. And that's something for a lot of men, that's a hard balance to figure out, right? Because you feel like the more intimate you get, the more kind of relationship you have, especially with a woman, um, the more out of whack you start to get about your like routine. And we talk about our freedom, like we have all these other things. So Orphan X, you know, I wanted to write a character who's starting from this position and trying to figure out what it means to engage with the messiness of being human and still maintain his code and still integrate it. That's very much what The Last Orphan's about. Okay, so I want want to kind of back up uh, a little bit and kind of, you know, go into the initial stages of Orphan X, but you said something there at the end, uh, kind of the coalescing of intimacy and perfection. So one thing that I've, I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of men that are in varying stages of their lives and their families and their businesses and whatever, and they always feel like there's at least one more force pulling them somewhere than they have capability, right? So it's like, if you're really crushing it at work, 
you're probably not spending as much time with your kids and kids spell love T-I-M-E, right? Uh, maybe you've got a, a very deep and <clears throat> fulfilling relationship with your wife, but you're, you're not really doing well at work. Or maybe you've got both of those things going squared away, but you're about 45 pounds overweight because you basically have neglected your body, you know, so that you could take care of these other things. So is that almost like the eternal cry of the man's heart to where it's like, look, I've got to check all these boxes, even though inherently I know it's not even possible. Does that make sense? Yes. And the thing is, that's important is everyone, we all have our private shame about what the thing is we're falling short on. Right. Right. So like I've had some success right now, right. In, in, in the material world and books, like, thank God it's been really cool. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a friend come by and stay with me maybe where he's having trouble financially, right. In that arena. And that's a source of kind of pain and shame in different ways. Right. Mm -hmm. But nobody has everything wired. We're always, always working on it and trying to maximize it. And you can see when somebody really gets integrated that more and more those things are in balance, but like maybe somebody else is overweight, right? The things that I'm dealing with right now are in a different bucket, but we all feel like we're alone in that. And if our thing's the worst thing, it's a millstone that's dragging us down. Mm-hmm. right? And everybody else can see this and see the disparity between us and them. And it's like, you don't know what you have, right? Maybe you have a great relationship with your wife and your finances aren't figured out and you can't you can't have kids for some reason. And you're trying to figure out which way to move into the future. Maybe you kick ass at your job and you're just hardcore and everything's squared and you don't have time for a relationship or you only have like superficial relationships. And that's something you want to figure out we try to expand ourselves in every direction. It's funny because that's part of why I love Batman. It's part of why I'm writing Orphan X. Um, But the key is trying to balance so many different opposites and to try and close that loop between... um, Pajot said something really interesting when I was talking to him. Jonathan Pajot, I'm sorry, he's a Greek Orthodox thinker, um, amazing mind. Um, And we were having this conversation and we were talking about the differences between shame and guilt. Actually, Shapiro was saying this too about this, that like guilt is how you measure yourself in relation to other people. And shame is your lack of, of, of what you feel in comparison to when you're falling short of striving to a higher ideal. Right. And so it's like, you don't want to have your guilt slash shame, no matter what you call them. And you can flip the terms with different meanings, but you don't want it to be in relation to everybody else. You want to be it between yourself and what you could be. Right. And that's hard to do because a lot of times if you're, if you're 40 pounds overweight, you feel terrible everywhere you go. Right. Mm -hmm. And everything you see, people are like, do this diet and do this workout and sit in a freezing cold plunge pool. And like, there's all this stuff that's working for everybody. Yeah. But okay. Like work on it. All those people have a bunch of stuff they're working on. That's the, that's the very nature of being human and going up against those things and trying to sharpen your biggest flaws to figure out what they are, it's like, it's like a, it's a tool that you're working on to cut yourself open and see what's inside almost. Well, even to, sorry, go ahead, Greg. Well, and it's, you know, you just, you keep at all these things and you keep setting them in order and you keep looking at all your decisions and you keep trying to move forward and figure it. And so it's interesting that I chose a book that's trying to integrate a lot of these ideas, not just a book, but a series that's about him trying to figure out how to assimilate and become Become a human being. How do you bring different parts of yourself into existence without compromising your excellence? He doesn't have room for excellence. If he screws up, he's going to get shot or groated or stabbed. Like there's no compromise on the perfection he has to bring to operational missions. 
like none. But then people are involved in their they're messy. They require compromise. They require mediation. They screw up your schedule. They screw up your time. They have their own needs. They're different than yours. Their flaws are different than yours. They see your flaws too. Mm -hmm. That's another problem with them, right? So this process of kind of navigation, and of course with the books, when I'm writing the books, I'm not thinking about any of this. I'm only thinking in story. My only job is to deliver like what's the best hardcore thriller that feels integrated to story level. That's just, you're going to read it like a thriller. I'm not trying to distill philosophy into little like meat puppets and have them chat on the page. But if you can do that right and you can figure it out, you're trying to kind of align whatever you're doing all the way as best you can. And then it can come out and maybe be something, something that's, that resonates beyond even what it is. Well, and the Orphan X series is obviously resonating. It's been wildly, wildly popular. As you said, it's led to personal success for you. But I feel like it's almost a description of the mosaic of humanity in that we're all broken and then we bring different pieces of our brokenness to whatever relationships that we're in. And the thing about it is, is you may have the friend that is like, you know, the gym bro, right? He's like literally like measuring out how many grains of rice he's going to be eating for lunch that day. And that's just not who you are. Well, guess what? You can lean on someone like that to help you in that area. And, but it's the same thing. It's like, don't take workout advice from people that are overweight. Don't take financial advice from broke people. It, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, we're all broken in different ways, but it's when we come together as a mosaic, just to kind of, you know, send that through a little bit even further. That's whenever the picture becomes beautiful again. But that's what you see even in the novels and even in the writing that you're doing. Is there something there? Because if it was straight thriller, then basically it's a bad 80s movie, right? And that's right. going to get old. You're not going to be eight novels into a bad 80s movie. You know what I mean? That's right. That's right. And what's interesting is when you're getting advice from that, from people, the other thing is, is you don't know fully, like, let's say you have your like buff dude, bro, former spec ops guy who's measuring the cups of rice. Believe me, I got plenty of them come rolling through the house here. Um, amazingly squared away, right? Mm -hmm. That's where like, if the discipline is there and it's calm and it's confident, then you can really rely on that. But we also don't know, like maybe somebody who's that rigid about everything is rigid in other areas of their life. So we're trying to borrow that as they're trying to maybe borrow and engage with you about other ways they see themselves so they can learn to de-rigidify or de-discipline as the top thing in the hierarchy, another aspect of their life. Maybe it's how they're parenting their kid. Maybe it's how they're moving at work. Maybe it's how they're handling the people under them at work, right? Whereas for you, maybe you do all those things really well, the other things, but you're having trouble with your diet, right? So you, you can borrow and integrate with people. And when you're talking about the mosaic, the thing is, is the engagement often should change both ways. Like if you approach any engagement like that with gratitude and openness and a real awareness of like what you're missing and doing wrong, often in that spirit, it's not just that you're changed, but you're changing the person who's engaging with you too. Cause they're seeing, I mean, maybe they're developing greater empathy too. Like let's say you're overweight and you're engaged with somebody who's like super jacked, right? And you're earnestly trying to figure it out. That's gonna give them also a lot more empathy for the ways people struggle and have other arenas of their life that maybe they're really good in or have a lot of depth in, right? And so every time that you approach something with, I, I think it's like gratitude um, and competence, such a key combination, right? Gratitude and respect, gratitude and humility. And it's hard because you're in all these different situations all the time where you're more of an expert, they're more of an expert, right? You figured out the meat diet, they figured out their vegan diet, like, 
there's a hundred things that go on all the time, but it's, it's about being transformational. And we're not going to be able to do that online in mosaic fashion. If we're all in different information streams, the only way we can do that is in community and being in community requires a lot more humility than we're prepared to have right now. Well, we're learning it. I shouldn't say that we're prepared, but we're learning it. It sounds like you're figuring it out in places like this podcast. Like I'm seeing shoots of this everywhere. But if we don't do this and everyone has their right answers and everyone who doesn't agree with you is vilified and dehumanized into a monolith, we're just screwed. Because it's like, we'll just take more and more obscene, ridiculous positions with our in-groups and pull further and further apart until we just actually go to war. Well, and our default mechanism will be constantly straw manning the other side, whereas steel manning being much more difficult is obviously much more valuable as well. But I think one thing that that is very important, and I I don't want to veer off too far into the philosophical, but I'm enjoying this, is there's an authenticity and an earnestness that someone should see when they're giving you help. And so if someone's like, yeah, man, I'd really like to be 40 pounds lighter, but they have no will or desire or or discipline to even do step one of that process, you're not showing me that you authentically want that because it's like, yeah, it's good to say that you want it, but you don't want to do what it takes to get there. The same thing. And this is what you and I were talking about off air is we're getting to this, this moment in culture where everything's very, very hot and everyone has a side. And I I certainly have a side. You certainly have a side. And we happen to be on different sides of what people would call the political spectrum. Right. But they're losing the ability to even engage with the other side about what they want to talk about. Because it's one thing for me to bust into some family's house and be like, this is what we're having for dinner and this is what we're talking about. Like that's probably not gonna be very well received. But if I accept an invitation to go to dinner in someone else's home and a subject matter comes up that's in their backyard, like literally their backyard, then then you should be able to discuss it without leaving with your blood pressure going through the roof. But we've lost that as a society. So screw the rest of the interview. Let's talk more about that. Let's dig in there because that that is killing us as a people group, right? We we can have disagreements, but man, it's just it's getting completely out of hand at this point. Uh, yeah, I've I've done a a great deal of work in this category and arena, and trying to figure out what to do about it. Jordan and I went one time to D.C. and we took ten Democratic Congress people and ten Republicans and just had them together at a dinner and started from a different point of like, how did you grow up? What were your val? You know, what was interesting to you? What's hard for you? How did you get into politics? And at the end of that dinner, it was like twenty exceptional people. You just arrived at it through a different starting point. And it's interesting, you're talking about sides and it's like, I don't even think I have a side anymore. I think I'm just on side human, human, human. Yeah, right. Like it's, I've spent so much time in so many different corners. I mean, I've really done a, I have a pretty full 360 exploration with some of the, you know, first of all, with my readers who are awesome, right? And half of my book tour is in blue state, half of them is in red state. It doesn't matter. It's like, I'm, I'm, everyone come on in, Right. But also a lot of kind of political, I've been in a lot of different corners of people who think different ways politically. And it's like, none of that's going to get anywhere. Like none of it, unless we move the culture through individual communities, communities are so key and responsibility. And if the culture, the society, not just the culture, the, 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 the country, the nation, whatever you want to say, built of little communities moves ahead the culture will move properly to follow it and chase it, whether that's, you know, Hollywood that's veering one direction or whatever the next iteration of Hollywood is going to be, 
or politics will move that way too. And maybe then our politicians will go, hey, you know what's being rewarded for me in fundraising? It's not my stunts. Like if I pull a political stunt, if I pull a big outrage, if I get another good ad that needles somebody. And I've, 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 yeah, I mean, but what's going to get me somewhere is showing straight intentions and outcomes and using minimal possible force. I mean, that's another thing that's really important, right? Mm. I have a perspective. Um, Pajot is amazing with this, right? So one of the things that we've been talking a lot about is that right now, I think we're having a separation of the secular world from the symbolic world, let's just call it, right? That's an easier way to think of it. So people are up in the secular world and they're like, wait a minute, let's say you're, you're from team, team liberal or liberal meaning. Everything that Donald Trump seems to do makes no sense to me, right? Yeah. Like he, his ethics, his this, his that, everything else. Here's the numbers, here's all this stuff. But there's a function that he's playing symbolically that's doing different stuff that's beneath the service. It's like the, the symphony in Wagner, like a Wagnerian uh, opera, right? Where Siegfried and Siegmund will be singing at the surface uh, and just talking about the weather and the light motif will, pl will play beneath it stands for love. So it's telling you what's happening. We're having these very different levels. And in case you feel like the world is turning upside down and going insane between like I mean, pick an image, pick a headline and then rewind yourself 10 years and then 20 years and then 30 years. And we're living in a time of absolute insanity. Makes no right sense. Now. Yeah. It makes no sense. And it only will make sense if we can combine the secular with the symbolic. That's it. Because they're unhooked. And so if people are reacting symbolically, they're hearing secular chatter of like, here's my experts, here's my studies, here's my statistics. Mm -hmm. And they're looking at symbolic people who are having a very different relationship with everything and there's not a connection up and the two sides are moving like streams on top of each other and they're not comprehending each other. And if they pull too far away, they're going to snap. And so I think a lot of the stuff that we are talking about in Exodus, the Exodus seminar, for instance, or in a lot of the conversations that people like you are having with this community is how do we not come on and see like, right? Like, how do we not have it be like, you know, Kyle destroys Greg Hurwitz, like, yeah. right? All like, yeah. but, but how do we start to have um, open hearted entries to start to understand how we stitch together the symbolic with the secular? And we're like conditioned with this roar of insanity all the time, right? Like I went undercover to a mind control cult once to do research. And mind control cults, one of the rules of it is you have privacy deprivation. If you're a cult, you don't go anywhere alone because you don't want time with your thoughts or to think for yourself. And you want to be surrounded with people who are signaling, not that you act like Kyle, Kyle, but you act like cult Kyle. Okay. So privacy deprivation. Well, what else is privacy deprivation? This is privacy deprivation. Mm -hmm. We carry a tool willingly around with us. And I'm not like some Luddite who thinks we should smash phones and like go back to being chimpanzees. But we're carrying something that's a curated environment of who we like and don't like, of what books algorithmically we're more likely to like that are going to be more like the other things that we've read. What entertainment? What are our friend groups? Who are we angry at now? And it's curating us into these separate slices, right? And unless we can figure out ways to have real face-to-face -face engagements, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. I would agree that we're going to be in a lot of trouble. And this has ramifications for every person, regardless of if you believe in God, don't believe in God, you're, you're involved in the political sphere or you're not, you've never voted. Like it's going to have ramifications because it affects us at a societal level. 
And regardless of your society, we all kind of have these agreements as to, okay, we want society to lead to human flourishing, but now we're having to debate as to what even a human is. So we can't even get to the debate about the flourishing. And there's so many tendrils that come off of that. Um, I want to put a pin in that. Maybe we can come back or around back to the, to, to the end here. So there was something interesting that came up in your novel that I think is at least tangentially tied to all this, because again, we're, we're, we're here talking about this one. We're talking about the last orphan. This is the eighth novel in the series. Obviously you've kind of teed up what the series is guys. If you're like me and you hadn't read the other seven, you can get who Evan smoke is because of the interesting way that you've kind of worked in some of this writing, because that was going to be my biggest, Oh crap. I'm not going to know what's going on because this is, you know, the eighth iteration of this, but you can definitely follow along, but without giving anything away, there's certainly a focus in, in this novel, The Last Orphan, about the bond between a father and a son, uh, and that, that's part of the Orphan X series, and that's certainly you know a feature of The Last Orphan. You are the son of a father, but as I understand it, you are not a father of a son. I believe that you have daughters. I guess, how do you think that affects how you write about the dynamic of the longing that a son has for the father? Because I think this also ties into what y'all are probably going through with the Exodus series. And, and for those of you that don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about the Exodus series that's on the daily wire. That's being, you know, ran by Jordan Peterson. You know, the, I think half the episodes are out right now. And then the other half is coming out later, but that desire, that longing for the father, that that's, that, that is not just a, a kid that, you know, is, is longing to for his dad to go play catch in the backyard, mm -hmm. but it is that it's, it's something at our core level that we desire a father, which in the Christian sense that we desire a heavenly father, that is more than anything our earthly father could be. So I don't want to draw too many lines of, of uh, connection here that aren't there, but I feel like that has a lot to do in a society that has a fatherlessness problem, right? All these affected groups, whether you want to base them on race or base them on, you know, social economic status, a lot of the negatives that come from those are because dad's not around, right? Mm -hmm. or, or dad's around, but he sucks so bad. So uh, you know, to save me from getting off on the soliloquy any farther, hop in here because I feel like a lot of that's coming through even in your novels. Well, so the biggest thing is, so here's where people freak out in the secular world, which I'm saying non-judgmentally as somebody who moves with great love and affection through a lot of parts of that world. But people mistake the masculine and the feminine when we talk about those things as differentiating factors with men and women. So if you talk about something being masculine, they're like, they don't understand that you're not saying that, um, that that feature isn't something that women embody and could be a great CEO or could be a president or could run a studio if that's what she wants. So it's like, if we're losing the ability to talk about terms doing different things or having different functions, then we lose an ability to kind of talk about everything. And that's often not what people mean when they talk about the masculine or the feminine, though, of course, it's, it is overt and embodied in a lot of ways in the world a lot of the time. But it doesn't mean that, that it's something that that's a straight, strict claim of these different categories, right? Hmm. And so the, the masculine, the masculine, not the male, I'm talking in a Jungian sense, organizes and orders and like strives. And the feminine is like, unbelievably powerful in a different way, right? Like the embodied feminine is so powerful that it's, it's almost like that the embodied masculine <laughs> trembles in awe before it because it's, it's like evolution is judge, right? And creation and, and the creator of everything. And so there's these two roles that are really important. And, and with Jung, the, the masculine, right? Has to integrate the feminine. That's the animus and the anima and vice versa, 
um, the other direction. We want both parts of these. We want both ethics of these, right? So it's very interesting. I think a lot about this with my um, my youngest daughter has told me, she goes, you're, you're a total girl dad, which is so great. Like I love yeah. having girls, you know? And um, it's really, it's just really comfortable for me, but obviously there's all sorts of complications and, and problems and issues with anything that's ever gonna come up around parenting. It's so complicated. But part of it is, is that, that there's a, um, there's a way that you want to reach out that that's for me being from a society where a lot of ways, there's like a lot of strong women around me. There always have been right. Not just my wife and my mom, but like my agent is a woman. My manager's a woman. Like I have a lot of like powerful women in these positions and they're, they're, they're unbelievably powerful in a whole bunch of ways. And the modulation with them isn't one where you want to, the, the, this sort of societal conversation that's being had is like, well, it's toxic or you're domineering or it's a patriarchy or it's all this stuff. You want to have an engagement all the time that's working where you're having like a respect of how people are, are figuring out their own integration as you're figuring out your own, I guess, is the best way to say it. And so there's a striving for something that's like orderly or organized and orderly. Hang on. Are we, we're, you're editing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Let's cut that answer back. I'm getting lost. Let's reset that. Just that one last one about the father. Can we, re, can we pick that up again? Yeah. You, you, uh, you roll however you want. I was following you just fine. So you like, you, okay. okay. Yeah. Well, like, I feel like I mean, I've been a little like abstract and abstract, never good. No, so, and, and, and to be honest with you, or right. to be honest with you, Greg, like with any of this, like I'll edit out this little, this little sidebar, like we've had, you would not imagine some of the conversations we've had with some people that get really off into the ethereal. It's totally fine. Like, I think the guys are following it. Yeah. We'll, we'll bring it back around oh, here. Okay. Bit to audio okay. Then, 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 then I don't care. I'm just, I feel like I'm getting a little loose. Cause it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting question. Well, we're working out, yeah. we're working this out real time. Well, so I and say, look, and maybe it. it's good that we just leave this. Too, okay. because it's like the process of trying to work out something that you're thinking and screwing it up. Like people should see that. It's hard to figure it out. It's hard to figure out kind of what I'm trying to say. So you're asking about the striving for the masculine and it's like the masculine, not men, like for secular people, we're going to misunderstand that is, is the aspect that kind of organizes and, and creates order, right? That's the hero myth. That's the shield on the cross when the hero goes forth to slay the dragon of the devouring feminine unconscious, Right. Right. And that striving right now is, I think, for like an order and setting things in a particular place in our society right now. Because we've had what I call definitional collapse. Like, how can we even talk about what sides we're on? Like, what does liberal mean right now? What does conservative yeah. mean right now? Good luck. Like, it, the definitions are no longer even making sense. So it's really, so I think the striving right now for the masculine is we need order. We need structure. We need to figure out what things go in what buckets, what things are in what categories, how do different parts of our community have stand in relation to each other. And the thing that was really interesting for me as somebody who comes in from a more liberal, secular, whatever you want to call that side, by which I don't mean to imply that I'm purely liberal and secular because I'm not, um, is the organizing factor within the symbolic world, in this instance, we can talk about faith, for how to integrate and process what the center of a culture is and, and, and what is at the, uh, the fringes of that culture held in a proper balance and integrated towards the center through the proper process so that society can function.
It's not the strict thing of like, here's the rules and here's the church and it's a man and a woman. And if you're not, you're good. You should be outed and shunned from the community. Um, Pajot said something that was really fascinating to me. I was talking to him and he was, well, you know what? I should talk to Jonathan and make sure that that's an okay story for me to tell. Um, okay. he's, he's mind blowing Jonathan Pajot. He's really interesting. And when he explains about community, He's done the best job that I've seen about explaining how within a world of faith, everyone can have different idiosyncrasies and everybody can have their different, um, their variations. As long as when they show up to his church, which is Greek Orthodox, the church is the primary thing that everybody is, is joining together to define that community. And so you're not going to lead with your identity. You're not going to lead with your politics. You're not going to lead with your sexuality, but like nobody does right? Everybody joins in the community under some established set of higher values. And so it's not about judgment and ver it's very much turned into judgment. And so I've been thinking a lot about the fact that like we have so many institutions right now that feel like they are corrupt at the, at the base of it, right? And, 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 and people tend to talk about that about secular institutions, right? Like the education system, higher, higher education. Certainly we know politics, right? Certainly we know, um, like Hollywood, like people are looking at all these different fields that feel like they're not, they're not working. But the other thing is, is that the institutions within the faith community also, of course, are going to bear responsibility and have not maintained themselves with a perfect lack of corruption. I mean, nobody would argue that they haven't been to some extent captured. Of course, not all, of course, not all any more than anything is everybody, but it's not like church has been these shining exemplars over the last you know, half century of morality and righteousness and humility and, you know, proper navigation. And so, and we're going to need the faith communities, I really believe, to help bring the symbolic into alignment with the secular. They're going to be, there's a key aspect of that. And for me, it's going to start with the people who embody the faith, their faith really purely. And so the example I'll give is uh, Justin Pajot. Another example I'll give is my colleague in a lot of the community building work I do, Samar Ali, who's a um, Muslim American, who's very, very, very pure in her outlook and her orientation um, and in embodying the values that she's espousing. And so once that sort of happens, we're going to see a lot of growth. And I think around those people who feel like they're special, who they're embodying the right aspect of their field, the right aspect of their institution, if those can clean up and get set in order and we can get them into kind of alignment where everybody's telling the same story, everybody's figuring out a foundational story, everybody's figuring out what categories we're going to agree on so that we can align the symbolic and the secular, right? Then I think what's going to happen is we can start to bring a new alignment and define which sorts of um, engagements go where. And it's really interesting. Like I was asked a question about this, about like politics or culture, because I, I do a good amount of discussion around it um, in a seminar I was doing. And I said, look, my top value, my, the top thing in my hierarchy value is that I'm a writer and I have to create a compelling story. If I subvert that to the political, then all of a sudden I'm writing propaganda. I don't want to write propaganda, right? I'm a novelist. And like knowing that that toggle has to hold in place, right? And then knowing, okay, well, let's say like there's this rash of, let's call it sensitivity readers, right? I don't want a sensitivity reader. What I want is somebody who's 
from one of those communities who's a blazing genius in writing to take a look and tell me what I missed the same way that when I'm writing about a Benelli combat shotgun, I call one of my former SEALs guys or an NRA instructor and go, hey man, what am I getting wrong? Because believe me, everyone's going to let me know if I get a gun detail. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it's like, I don't want to screw up some aspect of, you know, um, Hispanic culture, Mexican culture that I live in and love and grew up. I grew up in California. I have like family. I mean, I'm all of it, but I'm not, I don't want somebody from outside to assess and pick to pieces what I'm doing, but like I could go out and get a, like one of my friends is a brilliant, brilliant Mexican-American writer, um, Luis Urea. He wrote a book called Devil's Highway about border crossing um, that he reconstructed. It was shortlisted for the Pulitzer. He's so good, you can't believe how good he is. He's like, he's a genius writing and he's so charismatic and he happens to be a buddy and he happens to love thrillers. And so if I can have him look at this and go, hey man, tell me what I'm getting wrong. It's not, it's not like, hey, I want to be told all the things that I need to be sensitive to so that I don't have to make it. It's not that. It's I want the craft right. And part of getting the craft right is I got to get the guns right. I want to get people's cultures right. Right. I don't want to flatten them into two dimensionality. Now, I'm a pretty good judge of that. I have a really crazy community. I have a lot of relationships. I can think for myself when writing characters who aren't white Jewish dudes from Northern California. I really can. <laughs> Right. But I want to go out and make sure that I know what I'm doing. And if I do that in the spirit of having the balance right, that I'm creating a story, I'm creating art. It's art, craft, entertainment. Right. It's not that I'm leading with the political. And we, we've lost some of these distinctions where the political is creeping up above science. The political is creeping up above faith. Right. In some or some instances. Absolutely. Political is creeping up above entertainment. And it's like, wow, well, all of us need to do the thing that we do and get the the connections right in our own alignment right with our value structure and then go and show up to figure out how we can organize under a unifying um, principle that will then let us order everything in our institutions and our values within ourselves and have them come in a concert again. And of course, for that piece of the integration, we need the faith communities for that piece. That's what they do, right? They figure out, I don't agree with all of them, right? I don't even know which ones I might agree with more or less. But I do know when I talk to people from faith communities who are um, not hypocritical, who are pointed the right way and who are doing the right things and who are embodying what it is that they say. And that's like Summer Ali and Jonathan Pajot, to give two examples. Um, and it's when you see that, it's amazing. And then it's like, okay, if you're not hypocritical and you're aligned to a higher value and you're also having relationships across your whole local, local community in a way that even me coming from a more liberal mindset, meaning my genetics, my big five personality structure, I'm super high in trade openness, right? my environment, my personal community as a writer, I tend to live in this space that is that is further in this direction. But if they're aligned and can bring all those communities into concert, well, that's one of the things that that is a requirement for what we need to find in, in from the faith leaders. That's what we need. But we also need to say, hey, how are you taking care of the whole community then? I don't want to just hear about why, you know, anyone who's an immigrant is like all that nonsense that happens. It's like, Right. Like grateful immigrant. Great. That's who's going to rebuild a ton of. Right. That's what you want. Right. But you also want people who are who are 
community leaders, right? You want people who can figure out how to integrate and build the best and pull the best out of everybody, including people at the fringe, right? Including people who don't make as much sense and who maybe, you know, I said something in the, in the Exodus seminar towards the end, we were talking about this and it's like, what's the role of an artist? And it's like, and, and Jordan was talking about how some people can integrate the feminine, and the masculine. Right. And so mm-hmm. I was saying that's like David Bowie or Prince, right? Like we like Prince is amazing. Prince is like beaming with light. Like he's an incredible super genius, but you don't want everyone to be Prince. That like then right. Prince isn't Prince anymore, right? Like, so we want to have all these different things that are important to us. Like we, like someone who's a smart statistician or virologist, who's like mind blowingly sharp and competent and really looking at data properly. That's spectacular. Of course we need that. We just need it in its place with other things, right? How does that skew with when we're approaching, let's say a, a, a worldwide pandemic, Yes, we need virologists. Yes, we need doctors. Yes, we need all of that stuff. But we also probably want to talk to evolutionary biologists and psychologists and sociologists, right? And people in the faith community and people who see this symbolically and people, by the way, who are supply chain experts also, like that's kind of important to think about, right? Because if the supply chain gets screwed up, then all of a sudden, like we're in a whole other kind of trouble that could cause more suffering. So it's what you were saying is that it's like, it's not about that one side's right or like, let's not believe experts or it's the death of expertise and everything should be 2.0. It's about knowing how we're going to order all this so that as a culture, we're playing together like a symphony instead of having every section playing its own tune that's just clashing. And that's so much of like, go on Twitter for an hour and just scroll. And that's what it feels like. It feels like clashing. So you brought up so many things there. I was just jotting down a ton of notes. This guarantees that we're going to have to have you back on to talk about some other things. Cause I do have a couple of questions actually about the book, but I wanted to throw out a couple of things uh, that you pointed out that I thought was fantastic. We have elevated the political above everything else, right? So we've elevated like our faith cultures and our faith communities are downstream of politics. Our entertainment is downstream of politics. Our education is downstream of politics and it's causing some issues. Obviously we we've seen that uh, we've seen, you know, organizations that went a little bit woke and then their, you know, their finances went, went down, they went the opposite direction. They're like, Oh crap, they're trying to scramble to fix that. So that's one of the things is everything when it's in its right and ordered place, it does lead to more human flourishing. Another thing going back to at, at the beginning, when you were talking it's the Jungian struggle of the feminine and the masculine, the eternal feminine and the eternal masculine, and how that manifests in each individual person, which creates a greater society, which leads to the point about Prince. If we were all Prince, we wouldn't know what the feminine and the masculine right. was because my, they would be all blended. Right? And my, like, first, my first thing, you know, from my world is I'm like, that would be amazing. Like, that's my first reaction. That's like, like, wait a minute. minute. Right. Like, yeah. I'd love to be in a room with 50 princes and it's like, no, no, I wouldn't. Right. No, it's like, you absolutely wouldn't. Hey, well, well, that's the thing. thing if we don't have, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no. Like I, I think that when we have to have these categories, I think the, what, what all that can kind of be almost put, put a bow on is a lot of ideologies and worldviews. They have their feet planted firmly in midair, right? So I forget who, who said that quote initially, I would love to be able to give them credit, but that's the thing that most people, when they're trying to find a way to operate in the world, if they're, you know, conscious enough to actually strive for such a thing, they, they realize at some point that they're looking at the ground. They thought they were firmly planted in their ideology, but there is no foundation to what they're 
saying. And you can't build a society. You can't build a home. You can't build a family on anything that doesn't have a foundation. So this is going to be like a, a top 10 worst segue in the history of everything ever. But the person that booked this interview is going to kill me if I don't ask you this question because it's a very interesting question. So I, uh, I, I like to admit this from time to time, but if my intellect were a toaster, I don't think I could lightly toast uh, a piece of bread on both sides. So I struggle with reading fiction because I, I get lost in the story. I forget where I am. I forget who the characters are. So I listened to The Last Orphan. And the explosion of audiobooks, Greg, I think has been tremendous for people that do what you do because you're writing movies. I mean, you're writing Netflix and Amazon series and putting it in a few hundred pages. And it's enthralling to a guy like me that struggles with the reading side on fiction oh, specifically so that whenever I, I would have never access this book. If I had to read it, you know, by candlelight or something like that, it would have just never been there for me. But now I'm like, holy crap, Evan smoke in this entire universe mm. is opened up to me so that when it becomes a movie or a TV show, which I do want to ask you about as we wrap up, but talk to me a little bit of how the audiobook revolution has in some ways given new life and new fuel to what you're doing with the, the orphan X series. Hmm. Well, you know, people, People have been listening to stories forever, right? Forever, right? Way before we started writing them down. And so for me, I feel like I'm, I love, I'm a teller of stories, right? And I don't care how people get them. I don't care if you snort it or read it or listen to it. I don't care what your intake valve is, you know? Yeah. But I'm delighted. And my audiobook reader is a guy called Scott Breck. Mm -hmm. And so when I started this, I'll tell you a story. When I first wrote the manuscript for Orphan X, I hadn't even sold it yet. So Orphan X has this phone number. If you're in the US, you should call it. It's 1-855-2-NOWHERE, the numeral two. And that's the line people call if they're in like serious trouble and have nowhere else to turn. And he'll answer it now. And you have this off the grid encrypted assassin who's going to go in and try and set things right and back in order is basically it. But I went to Scott, Scott's local great audiobook reader. I like a lot of people consider him like the dean of the thriller in a lot of ways. And I was like, "Scott, he has his own booth in his house. Can you record a message for me on this 1855 to nowhere number before I'd even sold the book?" And so I put it in the book, I bought the number, he recorded it for me, and then when editors were reading the book to buy it, they'd call the number just cuz why wouldn't you? And there's Scott Brick on the other end. And when I sold the series, I said, I want in my contract, I think it's the first time this was done. Scott Brick is my audiobook reader, like ingrained in the contract. He's so mm -hmm. talented. And so what's really great is that he's, I can reach so many more readers um, through audio. The book sales are great. You know, I'm out in hardcover, I'm an ebook, I mean, I'm in every arena. But audio is great for people like for you. If, if that's how you take in a story that's going to hold your focus and have you leaning forward, great. Let's get it to you that way. Well, and the thing that I love about it is it takes away another excuse because I was the kid in high school that did everything I could to not read the book. I would read the spark notes before the test and that type of a thing. And now here I am last year, I read over 50 books, which is a lot for a guy like me that does all the things that I do. Really? And it's like, yeah, so 53 books, that's my, it's my new record. It's probably going to stand as my new record just because I, I do a lot of active things, but I made sure I kept coming back to books, but probably I think two of those were fiction, maybe three. And it was like, part of it is because I want to, I want to get something out of the story and I don't, I don't want to risk not being able to get something out of it. And so the audiobook format 
has been a game changer for me in terms of fiction, because if I'm on a long drive from Oklahoma City to Austin, Texas, I listen to everything at two times speed anyway, so I can knock out a book probably just in the drive down there, right? <laughs> you know, I was listening to your book as I was walking the dogs, as I was cleaning stuff around the house, as I was just chilling, uh, waiting to fall asleep at night, but it's something that will capture your attention. So to the guys out there, they're like, I don't need to read. I'm not in high school anymore. It's like, okay, then don't read. Don't call it reading. Call it Flafluga. I don't care. But it's you're putting in your headphones and you're getting a story and you're going on a ride. And we'll make this the last question of the day because I think it's very, very important. As I was researching this, I saw that very early on, and you mentioned it, you sell the Orphan X uh, thing, that it's it's going to be a movie or a TV show or something at some point. And I couldn't find like tangible, like, hey, is this in production right now? Uh, does you know Bradley Cooper's organization just have it to where they're going to release it when you've finally written the last Orphan X novel or something like that? So to people out there that are like, okay, the books are great, but I can't wait to see it in person. I can't wait to see it on the big screen, whatever that looks like. Is it a movie? Is it a TV show? Is it in production? You know, where are we at on this thing? So right now it's neither. Right okay. now I adapted it once for features. That was the mention. That was the deal with Bradley Cooper. And then he next went and did a Star is Born, which he, as you know, wrote, produced, directed, sang, right. acted, um, got the rights back. And and then there was, there was a bunch of stuff happening with TV. And basically what happened was I realized as this process was happening, I was adapting it and I was going to either showrun or do the screenwriting, which is a very different kind of muscle than when you're writing a novel, right? But initially I was like, I can do this, right? So I adapted Orphan X, right? And I was writing The Nowhere Man, the second one I was writing Hellbent. But what's tr a little bit tricky with Evan is, as we talked about, right, it's about his sort of evolution. And what I realized at some point was I was like, I can't manage these two parallel universes. Like I can't be writing The Last Orphan, which again, you can pick up, as you said, if you've never read an Orphan X book, start mm -hmm. there, see if you like it. And it's also very much about the abstract and theoretical versus what's grounded in the real world, right? It's very much about that mm -hmm. tension, um, which I didn't really think of until I was writing it. And then it's like, oh, of course, that's what it's about, right? Right. But um, I can't manage two because the universe, the parallel universes are too huge. So for me to jump back now and try and reset as a TV show... And so basically I've just sort of kept on the, um, I got the rights. I'm waiting to see, we get inquiries all the time from, um, you know, uh, actors and directors and producers. And I'm, I'm waiting to find the right point of connection to know that it's somebody who's read it, who gets the DNA of it. And then I can be there as a sort of, you know, exec producer in support as a database for the series. But I got to give it to somebody to make it their own because I can't manage both of those universes. Right. But I, so it's a, it's a really weird thing to figure out how to give up a piece of creative property that's this meaningful. Like, right, this is going to be, I'm going to be writing this for a long time. And so I'm, I'm really just, now that I've decided not to be the driver, be the creative, primary creative driver on the Hollywood or television front. I have to wait until I have the comfort level with somebody else to know the DNA to then give it to them for them to be able to make it their own thing. So that's, that's, yeah. that's a hard thing to figure out, but we're, you know, I have a lot of conversations and when I figure it out, I'll figure it out. When it's so unique, the position that you're in, because you've kind of worked on both sides. You mentioned writing for DC, writing your own novels, doing those types of things. And we've all seen adaptations of our favorite series, of our favorite novels that just were absolutely atrociously bad. 
Or as we've seen, I one prominent one that comes to mind is Game of Thrones. When you listen to people talk about Game of Thrones, everyone that talks about it talks about how it was amazing, 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 amazing. And then the people that were in charge of writing the television series, it seemed like they got distracted and then they just tried to like diarrhea dump the entire last couple of seasons of the show into this like macabre nonsense, yeah. you know, uh, of in anyway. So when you talk to people like that, you don't want that to happen because That's to right. in a large degree, I, this is your baby. You know what I mean? That's right. That's right. I'll say the, the Game of Thrones guys, um, Benioff has also written a couple novels. I mean, they're so talented with what they accomplished with that series. I can barely believe it. Like when I was watching that, I was like, life isn't fair that I can't have a Game of Thrones episode every night for the rest of my life. <laughs> right. So going back to our AI, our AI conversation, pretty soon they'll be like, you can. And then guess what? Then it wouldn't be special. Right. Right. Because it's not community where we're, it's like appointment viewing. We're all seeing the same episodes, even if, look, I got to it late and I know that, but you know, you want to get to something that's hitting the culture the same way, but it's really hard to manage all that. And I know that George R. R. Martin, who's obviously a just incandescently brilliant talent, he wasn't written down to that same extent. And so I think the ending, there was a lot of creative negotiations, but yes, I mean, what you want is the feel that Game of Thrones had when it was cooking, because you, I just couldn't even... I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how Shakespearean it was in its scope. And yeah. they accomplished that from the books. And the other thing is, is it's got to be different from the books. Think about the best adaptations, right? Like Jaws, Clockwork Orange, Godfather, Heart of Darkness, um, Apocalypse Now. They really moved off the marks of the books and interpreted them in different ways. So you're, you're moving across a medium, right, that needs to be different from what it was and how it functioned because so much more is visual. And so... It needs to be filled with the art of that medium, not just a like slavish interpretation or devotion from, from the source material. So that's a complicated relationship. It's like trying to find a dance partner, you know? And in the depth, I literally, as you're writing that, as you were talking about that, I wrote down the word depth. Part of the reason why some of these shows speak to us in a certain way. So, you know, Breaking Bad is one of my favorite shows that I've ever watched all the way through. There's depth to the characters that you don't get from a movie, right? Like that you had to see them play out in 45 minute chunks oh over God. years and years and years. And then it coalesces into an understanding of who a person is in, a, in, in their brain because the same thing, reading one novel versus eight in a series, you're learning things about Evan, but then you're also seeing some things in Evan that you recognize in yourself. And that attaches you to the protagonist in, in a way that is very interesting. Or you see some of yourself in the antagonist that you bring in from time to time into the books, which gives you a little time to, to really have that internal dialogue. But Greg, uh, we're out of time. I know you got a lot of things to do today and we opened up a whole can of worms on this podcast that people are gonna be like, Kyle, why didn't you ask him this? And why didn't you say that guys? I did it to make you mad. That's why I didn't ask the follow up yeah. questions, but I really, really enjoyed this conversation, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Look, I'm, I, this was fun. It's good and rangy. You know, I'm going, I'm heading out on book tour. I'm going to be in, um, let's see, I'm in Northern California. I think I'm in the Bay area. I'm in LA. I'm going to be in Austin, Houston, Dallas. I'm hitting Texas hard this year. It's going to be good. fun. Um, I'm going to be in Scottsdale, um, Florida. I got some stuff. So, you know, come on out and say hi. If you, if you want to come, I got all the details about my tour schedule on my website. It's gregherwitz.net. And I'm, you know, come find me on social media. I'm there. I'm easy to find. But, um, you know, it's cool. I like talking. I like talking about this kind of stuff. And it's, um, it's been really interesting. I feel like I've been doing nothing but talking about and thinking about story now for like this acute period the last couple of weeks, um, which has been amazing, right? Between 
kind of figuring out that the Exodus seminar and figuring out getting this book ready and up on its feet. And, you know, we got a lot of work to do in terms of those things we were talking about, about trying to get all of our story right from the top level, whatever you want to call it down, secular, symbolic, if you want to call it faith, if you want to call it differences politically and culturally, if we can get the story right about who goes in what place where and how we have that relationship with each other, one another, our communities with one another, and also within ourselves, it's the same process of integrating all the stuff between ourselves and integrating all the different groups in a community. And it's a blast. It's a blast talking to you, thinking about all this stuff, right? And talking to a lot of other people who are thinking the same way. And it's exciting. I mean, that's there's a lot of stuff that we can do if we can start to have these kind of real conversations. So I appreciate you having it with me, Kyle. Absolutely. The eternal power of story is something that is very, very integral to how we're going to operate as a people group. And also guys, just so you know, in the show notes, you can check out Greg's website and his Amazon page and all the other stuff. So if you want to make sure you want to go out and see him on tour, all that will be on there. Greg Hurwitz, thank you for coming on on Daunted Life, a man's podcast. Kyle, it's a pleasure. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Greg Hurwitz. But before I let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got a few links for you today. I've got a link to where you can buy your own copy of The Last Orphan. I've also got a link to his entire Amazon page to where you can check out all of his other titles and then also a link to his website so you can check out an event that he's got coming up. Again, go see him on his book tour or anything else that will be right there on his website. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. Judah.